0: Welcome to Data Science Club number 26. I'm about to uh, play what was a a pre-recorded interview that we did with Patrick Hall, who's the uh, Senior Director of Data Science uh, Products at the company H2O.AI. I hope you guys uh, enjoy it. It was a really fun conversation, uh, and I know I learned a lot, and uh, hopefully you will as well and uh, hopefully we'll do more interviews like this in the future. Let us know uh, if you had any questions and we can always reach back out to Patrick and, and get some answers for those um, or uh, we can see who else we can uh, have on or what else we can we can cover. So um, yeah, without any uh, further ado, here's the uh, interview and uh, Jupiter Notebook that we did with uh, with Patrick. Enjoy. Um, and Ravi is running a little bit late, but he'll join us when when he shows up okay um so how are you doing today
1: i'm good how are you
0: uh i'm doing good thanks so much for um agreeing to um join us on our uh, little data science club podcast screencast thingy
1: sure seems seems like a decent use of time on a friday morning
0: yeah yeah we have uh we have a lot of fun with it and uh Kind of use it as a way to help sharpen okay. our own skills and then also provide a shallow end of the pool for folks that are looking to get into data science things okay um uh so yeah i guess um i guess we should just go ahead and get started with uh to use your time well uh get started with questions and um we'll just kind of see where it goes
1: okay i do have um so you know, I wanted to use that aquarium environment, which always works, except for it's not starting up this morning. So,
0: okay. And um, I can't
1: really troubleshoot it. I'm just, I can just use a regular Jupiter notebook. Okay. Um, and it may just kind of start up in a minute. I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what's going on.
0: All right. Well, um, the other thing that Ravi and I have talked about is that, uh, given that you had sent us a few different notebooks, we were thinking that we would in a couple of future sessions, just go through those on our own as well. Uh, since you said the aquarium environment is, um, uh, available for academic use.
1: Yeah. But this morning it's slow. Okay. Um, or broken. I'm not sure which, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, uh, uh, being in a research computing environment. So that's where, um, where we're at. So we run the, uh, the supercomputer here at UAB. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we're familiar with those kind (laughs) of on-demand resources. They always work unless you're trying to give a demo.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's always worked in the past. I just did a tutorial like in, in Budapest and, um, I don't know. It's weird, but, but yeah, it's being, it's not it's not working for me this morning so um maybe it'll come online in a little bit and if not i can just use um just regular Jupyter notebook
0: okay all right well that that sounds great uh that sounds great um all right uh well yeah then I'll, i'm gonna just start with questions and then we'll get to the Jupyter notebook and okay. we'll just kind of see where it goes um so thanks again patrick for um for letting us uh, interview you. uh, And uh, so can you just tell the folks that will be watching and listening a little bit about uh, your educational and work background? I know you work with uh, the company um, Mm H2O.ai, which does a lot of work in the interpretable and explainable machine learning space. Um, So yeah, just a little bit about your education and work background.
1: Sure i I started out as a as a chemistry major in undergrad and um, did a couple years of that and then switched over to math and I ended up graduating with a with a BA in math and going on to chemistry graduate school where I studied uh, physical chemistry and computational chemistry um, that I just did not love that. But but it ended up being really, in the end, it, it ended up being really good because it turns out that the math in um, computational chemistry is very, very similar to the math in machine learning. So yes. in in computational chemistry, we're always trying to rearrange the atoms until they're in a low energy state. Yeah, and uh, machine learning, if you don't know is really just rearranging model parameters until the model is in a low error state. So
0: yeah, yeah, it's just uh, gradient it's, descent, essentially. Yeah,
1: it's it's really. Uh, so so that just ended up being kind of a lucky coincidence. And I did what a lot of people apparently did, which was get out of physics or chemistry or or um, other hard sciences like that and try, try my luck in, in data science. And that's, that's how I ended up here. So, um, you know, I think I did not finish the chemistry degree, I ended up getting a, a master's in analytics from NC State University a couple years back. And, uh, and yeah, and work, I worked at SAS Institute, which is uh, their large analytics software provider, mm-hmm. based out in North Carolina, and then I worked at H2O. And now, now I'm Now it's here. Now it's now.
0: Yeah. And so you're the um, the senior director of product there at H2O.
1: Yeah, that just means um, I'm not a very good engineer, which is true. (laughs) Um, I, you know, so I help direct the product by, you know, essentially research efforts and um, interfacing with customers and and um, think tanks because the The explainability stuff has so much to do with regulation. There's a lot of um, sort of communication with with these kind of pseudo regulatory think tanks and occasionally regulators themselves and uh, and of course, customers, a lot of working with customers to get things right. So. So, yeah, that's that's what I do.
0: Yeah. So you're you're very kind of externally facing uh... about
1: half and half. I spend a lot of time working on prototypes and writing, writing papers and stuff like that. And then probably about half the time out, out in the world, talking to people doing okay. stuff like this.
0: All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're, we're certainly happy you could have the time to do this kind of stuff with it, with us too. Um, uh, so would you say that that's par for the course though, with data science is that there's a lot of interaction with people involved with doing the, the data science?
1: Uh, I think to be successful. Yes. Um, well, and I think it also depends. It also depends. So one thing is, I do write a lot of papers, but they're not really research papers, right? They're very practically oriented papers. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of uh, best practices type things and, and, and so yeah, I think if you are, if you're not a pure machine learning researcher, which actually very few people are, Uh, Then then yeah, you do need to be out there interacting with with the people who who are going to be using whatever Data data or or machine learning product you might be making
0: Cool Um, All right, um, so So let's see. It seems like you kind of started doing data science more in name once you moved into the graduate uh, program uh, in that master's degree that you said yeah. uh, that you moved into, um, so when it, it seems like you're also doing a lot of stuff with machine learning interpretability and yes. explainability, yes, and I've heard that those are two different things. So well,
1: yeah, some or people, some people say that yeah. People different. have differing opinions, and and I try to respect those opinions. Um, there, there is an effort to make directly in interpretable nonlinear, quote unquote, machine learning models. So models that that would at least have the capacity to be more accurate than than linear models or single decision trees or sort of mm-hmm. simple rule based systems, things that we would generally consider to be interpretable. So, so there are, um, researchers who work on that aspect, um, in particular Cynthia Rudin at Duke University and Rich Caruana at um, Microsoft Research come to mind. And, um, and even they have different words for it sometimes. Sometimes um, some of the Caruana papers have said intelligibility. But um, it does seem like in general that, that we talk about, like interpretable is a property of a model whereas explainable is something that we an explanation is something that we do after the fact you know and and this is just mostly right mostly and and i think one one thing that i'm trying to be vocal about is you know it might be better to use both of those things together um and using a, a model form that's directly interpretable and then seeing what kind of extra information you can get out of it by using some of these post-hoc explanation techniques like Lime and Shapley values and, and things that you hear about on the internet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that is that the primary domain that then you're, you're trying to focus on with your, um, data science, uh, that,
1: yeah, that, that's definitely what we've worked on really hard the past three years or so. And now we're, we're trying to branch out um, into some different areas, only because we realize that that to do this right, you know, who who cares if a model is interpretable if it's biased, it, you know, how, you know exhibiting a lot of unwanted sociological bias. Who cares if a model is interpretable if it's wrong? Who cares um, if a model is interpretable if it, you know, if it's if it's been hacked or manipulated. So so I think all of these things, um explainability, uh, interpretability, fairness, which um is is very difficult to define and even talk about, um security and and then what we call model debugging, I think they all really are are important and, and don't exist in a vacuum, right? They're they're all yeah. inner inner Tangled with each other, highly locally dependent on each other, like like in a machine learning model.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, do you um, do you feel like there is a time coming in the near future where uh, we might actually start implementing Isaac Asimov's three rules of robotics into machine learning models? Once we have a good handle on these, uh, you know how to interpret and explain our models and Build fairness into them.
1: I don't know exactly what those three rules off are off the top of my head. I mean, I'm I don't having, remember
0: what they are off the top of my head either. But basically, a, like, a, do no harm to humankind. Kind yeah,
1: of. yeah, yeah. That's what I have in mind too. And I got like I got a strange email a couple months back asking if my company um, was making tools that can kill people automatically. Oh, wow. So that was that was kind of striking. Yeah. Um, to which I replied, "No. I mean, I I hope that's not what we're doing. We just we just make machine learning software. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that's okay. So that's a very crucial thing that that you know why I'm always on a high horse, annoying people, being preachy about this is you don't know what your software or the model you train may eventually one day be used for, and um, and and so that's a really important thing to think about and And so I would argue now I googled the three laws, and I'm looking at them, Uh, a robot may not injure a human being. Um, A robot must obey orders given by a human being a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So, um, I I think we already need the first two, actually, there's too many examples of, of discriminatory or, um, or sort of otherwise misused or abused machine learning systems. There, there's too many examples of those things already. Yeah. And uh, and so maybe maybe we need something along the lines of the first two already. And that, that's one thing I always try to communicate to people is it's actually not a far off thing. It, it, it's already happening today, at least to a certain extent. So do you think uh, that the unfairness of a machine learning model, does that come in with not having a training data set that's representative of every fact or? Yeah, that that's one that's one place where it can where it can sneak in. Um, I I always go to pains to say I'm I'm really not a fairness expert or a or a social scientist in any way. Um, I Yeah, just certainly one place that that unwanted sociological bias can sneak into machine learning models is having unrepresentative data. Um, There, there are, there are other ways that it can sneak into a model. But the one I think one thing that even someone who's not an expert, like me can can communicate clearly is, I think there's this, um, you know, potential misconception that somehow machine learning models make bias. Mm -hmm. Um, Machine learning models as compared to sort of lower capacity predictors like like linear models probably have the ability to exacerbate bias. But mm. but, you know, models learn from data and, and so very oftentimes the, the bias exists in the data. It, it would be a very I, th- I think it would be a very rare case for a machine learning model to, to take. Uh, bias without unwanted sociological data without unwanted sociological bias and somehow make bias out of it. Um, yeah. but it, it's probably possible. It's probably possible, but I think that's one thing to communicate is that unwanted sociological bias does come from data and many of the mm-hmm. ways to remedy it involves, you know, just, just having the right data.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, I think one of the, um, you had a few different Jupiter notebooks that you had sent us to look at. um, And I'm going to let you pick whichever one you feel like you want to show this morning. Okay. Um, And then as I said, Ravi and I will probably explore the other ones in some future uh, podcasts kind of on our own uh, in the next coming weeks. Yeah,
1: that's, that's great. And I'm happy to answer questions. If you guys have any, I'm, um, I'm toying with whether I'm going to show it using the H2O Aquarium environment, which does seem it was slow this morning, but it seems to have popped up um, and if all else fails, I can just show it off my off my um, Laptop. So let me go ahead and, and share my screen. Okay. Okay. All right. Perfect. Let's see here. we will give this. All right. So this is on aquarium because it, it has this Amazon um, URL. Uh, so so I'll give this a couple. I'll give this a couple more seconds. It ran one cell, but now it's being a little bit okay. All right. So I think aquarium is going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which it usually it it always has before now. Um, okay. So if you want to follow, if, if you, know, you want to follow along, I'll, I'll keep these instructions up. It's pretty easy to get started using aquarium. Uh, the key is, let's see, once you get in, um, you probably want to go to, mm-hmm. you want to go to lab seven open source MLI, which is an internal abbreviation that we should be a lot more careful with, which stands for machine learning interpretability. Hmm. that's, that's the lab that we're going to be working on. Okay. And once you get that, and, and again, you can follow the instructions here. Uh, and and I'm not going to read them to you because I assume that, that most people that will watch this can read English. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I'm going to, I'm going to do my favorite recent notebook with this, which is disparate impact analysis, which is, which of course disparate impact analysis is sort of a canonical traditional um, bias detection tool. And um, so this this notebook has a little little this notebook has a little bit of everything, which is why I like it. So it has a little yeah. bit of, of the um, unwanted sociological bias detection. It has um, it has constrained machine learning models, uh, or, you know, an interpretable models or more interpretable models. And then it also has some of that post hoc explanation. So so that's why I, I like this notebook because it it kind of touches on a lot of different things so um you know we I think everybody is well not everybody but many people are interested in in learning more about fairness and machine learning these days and so I've highlighted some I'm again I'm not an expert I'm not a social, social scientist I'm a technologist um but but these seem to be really good resources so this is a a book that's sort of a free book that's being kind of written in public a lot like the the Famous deep learning book that came out over the last couple of years. Uh, these are packages that just total open source packages that probably make some of the things I'm going to do in my notebook a little bit easier. And then I would say this IBM AIF three hundred and sixty package goes way beyond what's in this notebook. They have all kinds of um, neat stuff that you can check out for for um, not only checking for for unwanted sociological bias, but but uh, re- removing it either by either by pre-processing data, uh, training models which somehow consider fairness as their training, or or post-processing your model decisions. So uh, this this is a really um, interesting package that that you know I, I urge people to check out, and and all three of these are really all all three of these represent really nice work that that was um, done either in the commercial or, or academic community um, all right so I, I honestly don't even know what this cell does it just it's something that lets us do port mapping so don't worry about that um, and now we're going to import some of the software that we're going to use so I, I think the most interesting things here are are we're, we're going to use h2o which is you know it's, they're my employer but in this case it's also just a completely again, a completely open source piece of software hmm. um, we're going to do. And and feel free to jump in if you have questions. So we're going to train a, a gradient boosting um, tree, tree, tree model. So, okay. so a tree is that, ensemble model.
0: Is that similar to XGBoost?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just, um, so my friend Sillard Pafka, whose Twitter handle is data science, LA, he's like, he's got to be the world's leading expert on applied gradient boosting. And he has all these, uh, all these uh, detailed sort of recommendations of when you might want to use H2O versus XGBoost versus like GBM. But I think for our purposes, they're all very similar. So, so um, yeah, it's very similar to XGBoost.
0: Yeah. Different sizes of Phillips head screwdrivers, but in the same family.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, if, if you're doing something really serious, you should go look at Sillers' work and, and, you know, get a good sense for when to use which library. But um, generally speaking, they're, they're very similar. Um, then this Shap package. Um, you know, I'm also a huge fan of the work of Scott Lumberg at the University of Washington. And now, yeah, um, Microsoft Research, and this is this is the, the package that has the his new tree shap and other sort of Shapley value work in it. So, um, but again, totally open source. So, uh, we'll be, I think those are the only sort of notable things to call out here. Everything else is just meant to be very, very standard uh, Python packages. Mm-hmm. All right. So one thing with H2O is we we imported H2O, but then we have to initialize H2O. So so one thing to n- realize about H2O that is different than XGBoost is H2O is both a library and a server, mm. and um, that's where some of the magic of H2O comes in. Is that it's you know it, it it's like. It's very native in the Hadoop ecosystem. It, it can run across multiple machines very easily, and and that's because it it there's this Java software server in the background that's that's sort of managing all the uh, all the complex stuff that's that's going on that makes H2O fast and scalable. So that's just one difference between H2O and XGBoost. After I said they're generally the same, is. Um, H2O is both a library and a server, and, and that means that we can talk to the server with R, with Python, with Java, with Scala. So, so probably everything I'm going to show today could also be done with R, if, if there are people out there in the audience, which there often are. Um, so I'm going to use this Taiwanese credit card dataset that's available on Kaggle and um, the University of California Irvine Machine Learning Dataset Repository. Um, it's a really, really simple data set and small, um, but but it, it works for our demo purposes. So basically we have um, demographic variables about people which we won't um, use in the model today because you know that that's one way that people think that you can train more fair models and then in and just one way right people argue or, or have differing opinions about that. Um, and then, and then also in the context of credit lending, credit lending in the United States, it's it's typically just frowned upon or even illegal to use variables like this in your model. So mm-hmm. uh, we do have these demographic variables, and we'll use them later to test for unwanted sociological bias. Um, and then we have things like their credit limit, um, their repayment statuses. So this is a this is a categorical variable that essentially says, you know, they, they paid in full, they, they left some balance on their revolving account. Um, they were one month late, two months late. So basically, uh, lower is better and higher is worse. Okay. For, for these repayment statuses bill amount is just a numeric variable. It's their billing amount. Uh, it's how much they were billed and then payment amount is how much they were paid. They paid towards the bill. And uh, it's all across six months. So pay zero, bill amount one, pay amount one, that's the most recent information we have, going back to pay amount six, bill amount six, pay six. Um, that that would be the, the information from six months ago. And I get another slight difference between H2O and, and XGBoost would be that H2O accepts carrier, character inputs directly. Um, which doesn't usually matter in a Kaggle contest or something like that, but it is really nice out there um, in the real world. Okay. So I'm just going to read the data in briefly assign some modeling roles. So we're going to be trying to to predict whether someone defaults the next month. And that's a one zero binary target in, in the uh, credit card data set. And we're going to use these variables as inputs we're going to use all the payment information that we have as inputs and not the demographic variables and um you know credit limit is really is probably questionable whether whether to put that in there or not it's kind of it could it could potentially leak information because because credit limits are a way that risk is priced in but just for this kind of small and and in the in the context of Adverse action notices like in the the more regulatory context. I I probably can't use that as an adverse action notice I can't tell somebody I'm not giving you more credit because I gave you a low credit limit, right? The the spirit of the regulation is to give people reasons that they can appeal, right? So Mm -hmm. so I can't you know, I can't that's why I can't say you're too old for a credit card or um you're too young for a credit card or I've given you this credit limit, then I'm not allowing you to change. And that's why I'm not extending your credit. So, um, just, just a caveat. Uh, let's see. This is H like I said, H2O does accept character variables. So this is just to recode the data. Um, so it looks prettier that it actually has some of the character levels in there.
0: Yeah. Does it, um, in the back end, is it just one hot encoding those um, those characters no, or is it doing some other kind of encoding? It does different
1: things for different models and okay. it actually does different things for different models and and it's fairly detailed in, in the documentation and, and okay, I'm sure sometimes it does just one hot encode them, but sometimes it does fancier things.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, We'll, we'll have to check that out when yep. we run through the other stuff. Um, and
1: sometimes I use exubos. I mean, I think they're both really, really solid tools. All right. So this is just to give you some idea of what the data looks like. So this is the, the first 10 rows of the data. So we can see credit limits there. in um, I think new Taiwanese dollars as the currency. So they're, they're a little bit higher than they would be in terms of American dollars. Um, but they run roughly from 10,000 to a million Taiwanese dollars, the credit limit. Um, And we can see here's the, here's those repayment variables and the billing amounts, Mm -hmm. payment amounts and our our binary target that we're gonna try to predict. Uh, I'm gonna do a unrealistic super simple 70-30 validation, you know, training validation data split you probably want to do cross validation or, or, you know, have an actually workable validation strategy if you're going to do something in the real world, but just, you know, for our silly little example, we'll just do 70 30. Okay, uh, sure. Train test or train validation. Okay. Now, this is where so this is where the, you know, I'm going to put constraints on my GBM model, which would typically be a, a black box. Um, or or somewhat of a black box, I'm going to put constraints on it, um, using prior knowledge to or or business domain knowledge uh, to make it more interpretable. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to look at the Pearson correlation between each input variable and the target. Okay, so these are the variables that I'm using as inputs to my model. And then these are the Pearson correlations. And if it's negative, um, I'm gonna say, or, or I guess bill credit limit is, is the first example. So if it's negative, I'm gonna say, um, as credit limit increases, the model output, the probability of default can only decrease. And that sort of makes sense, right? If we give somebody a million dollar credit limit, we're doing that because we don't expect them to, to default. Um, pay zero is sort of the opposite. Um, where, you know, I was saying that higher is worse for pay zero. So as pay zero gets higher, we expect somebody to default. So I'm going to encode that into the model directly and say, hey, as pay zero increases, I only want um, model the model output, the probability of default to um, to increase. And so the way we do this in H2O is we create a a Python dictionary um, that has the name of the variable and a minus one or a one for negative monotonicity constraint, positive monotonicity constraint. Mm -hmm. And then we pass it in here. And we're already done training and a lot of times people, you know, I'm pretty, I guess my views are pretty rad. Okay, so before I talk about that, I should say, um, if you are gonna use monotonicity constraints in your machine learning models, which I think is a great idea, you, you probably do need to constrain every variable in the model because if you don't, and and let's say you constrain an important variable and you leave an unimportant variable unconstrained, um, then very likely the model will just force some of the signal from that um, important constrained variable onto the unimportant unconstrained variable, and it probably won't affect your model accuracy but it will make like the partial dependence or ALE or or ICE like the functional form of the model will be really hard to understand because it's essentially pushing signal from one variable onto another variable. So if you're going to do monotonicity constraints, like you you should probably constrain all the variables. That's actually a pretty big constraint. And um, oftentimes people ask me, is there something you can do to not do that? And if it is, you know, I would say yes and I would check out um, these GA2M models. Um, they're, they're highly interpretable and really accurate and they're available um, through the Microsoft interpret library and, and they don't make those kinds of assumptions. So I, I think this is, this is a, if, if you can't do all monotonic, which sometimes you obviously can't, then I think this GA2M model is a, is a really good alternative. All right, and sometimes people ask, you know, what's the difference with the monotonicity constraints and without the monotonicity constraints? Let's just look. So AUC point seven seven AUC point seven eight without the monotonicity constraints. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it matters. I mean, especially and and you know, what I was going to say earlier, where I have a fairly radical stance is for tabular data, I actually don't think it matters at all. I, I think that the interpretable models, the GHM, the monotonic GBM, I think they are as accurate as any black box model that you could possibly use on tabular data. And so, yeah. so there's really no excuse to be using black box models on tabular data. That's, that's my opinion. And it, I guess it's shared by some other leading researchers, but um, you know on un, unstructured data is different unstructured data tends to be more complex and, and may require more complex models or may not T- time will tell time will tell so now we're looking at the the Shapley values and this is this is just a nice new variable importance metric that works globally for the entire data set and that's what we're looking at here so we're kind of ranking all the variables in the across the entire data set and then later we'll see how Shapley values are used to um are used to make variable importance that are that are per row that are different for every row so that that was a huge breakthrough and and the the Shapley values are um are special we we probably don't have time to get into it but it's 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 not just another variable importance metric in my opinion it's really kind of a, a an important breakthrough but probably you know, that that can be for another time or for somebody for somebody's homework or something. All
0: right. Sounds, sounds good.
1: <laughs> All right. So, you know, whenever I train a, a binary classifier, I, I have to make a decision threshold, right? Like when it, when am I really going to because the model generates or this model generates probability as default, you know, continuous numbers between zero and one. And um, you know, I have to turn that into a yes. I think this person's going to default, or no. I think I don't. No, no. I think they won't default. Um, and so I'm going to use PR, precision and recall. Uh, I'm going to and and the F1 statistic. I'm going to maximize F1, which is a good balance um, between these two uh, accuracy measures of recall and precision. And um, Some one time somebody asked me, you know, if I'm if I'm selecting the model by AUC, is is there a better way to select the cutoff? And um, I think the gold star answer here is something called Juden's J, which which would pick the cutoff that that maximizes, you know, at the peak of the of the AUC charge. Okay, but I don't I mean picking cutoffs by f1 is really standard. It was a good question. The person who asked that question That was a good question. I had to think about it for a while. All right. So basically, I'm just going to pick a cutoff um, our, our f1 statistic is maximized at a, at a threshold of 0.27 So above 0.27. We're going to say they're going to default below. We're going to say no, they're not and um, These cutoffs actually have a lot can impact the the disparate impact characteristics of the model pretty dramatically. And and so we'll see later that that probably this cutoff is a little bit too conservative and we might wanna go back and, and be more careful about it. But I think the point I'm trying to show is I'm just following a, a well-known machine learning best practice selecting a binary classifier cutoff by using F1 statistic. And we'll see later that that's actually a little bit problematic. And you know here's just, you know, we're, we're taking a good balance between high precision and high recall when we when we take that um, cut off at, at 0.27. So to get into the the basic bias testing stuff a little bit, we need confusion matrices and confusion matrices are always confusing. Um, it's basically a measure of true positives. So these are people that that did default that we said would default. Uh, These are people who we said would default but did not default. Uh, These are people we said would not default but did and these are people that did not default. And we said they would not default. So true positive, true negative, false positive, uh, false negative. And basically what we want to make sure is that our model is both balanced in its accuracy across, we're gonna check across genders. And and so we want to make sure that our model is both balanced in its accuracy across genders and in its errors across genders. Mm-hmm. And and so the first step will be to look at the confusion matrix for for men and for women, right? And and there's anything does anything in particular jump out at, at us? And and so here's the confusion matrix for everyone. And then this is just the same data, but sliced up by, by men and women. And so um, right off the bat, the only thing I'm noticing is, is that the, um, the, which one is this? This is um, false negative and false positive the rates look the rates look really similar for women and a little bit more different for for men so so we'll have to look into that and and see if that does end up being being a problem um so again this is one of those places where you know i was saying this is a real issue today um, you know cre- credit lenders have been using predictive models probably for decades. I'm not I'm not 100% sure, but I I think for decades. And so if I don't give someone a loan incorrectly, you know, that that's essentially a a false accusation of financial impropriety, right, that it's a big deal. And um, if I do give someone a loan incorrectly, uh, like two things are going on there. So and, and and okay, so I think one thing I've learned from both sort of the fairness and security aspects of machine learning is there's always two sides to the coin, right? If I don't give someone a loan that that they would have paid back, um, then, and I think that's a type two error, then um,
0: it's a lost business.
1: Yeah, it's lost business for me. So it's it's lost fees and interest for me. And so it's an opportunity cost for me and it can be a, you know, and it's like an accusation of false impropriety to to the person who I made that decision against. Yeah. So if I, if I'm, but on the other side, if I miss that someone's going to default one, I'm writing off a ton of money and two, I'm, I'm giving money to someone, you know, assuming that I don't have infinity dollars to lend. I'm giving money to someone that I could have given to someone else. And so so both of these type one and type two errors um, have two sides to them, right? They hurt me and they hurt and they hurt the outside. They hurt people outside of the company in different ways. Um, There are there are a lot of of metrics that are used for for assessing the fairness of a, of a binary classifier. And this is only some of them. Actually, this isn't even all of them. This is just ones that are easy to calculate using the confusion matrices. Um, we Will focus on adverse impact ratio AIR uh, And and then I think we're going to see that we have a Um, We're going to see that one of these other metrics pops up as as being a little bit problematic and I can't remember exactly which one, but but we'll we'll see when we get there. So so again, right, we want to know if the model, but but in general, right, it's good to test a lot of things if you're seriously concerned about this. Now, this isn't what I'm saying isn't probably accurate in a a regulatory setting, but just in general. You know, we want to make sure the model has equal accuracy across groups. So things like true positive rate and precision. And then we want to make sure that it has equal errors across groups and, and that, you know, false positive rate, false negative rate. So, so both accuracy and error. We want those to be roughly as equal as possible across groups without compromising the model too much. Um, And then adverse impact is, is a little bit different. It's, it's, it's probably the most traditional well-known metric. And, and we'll talk about that in more detail in just a second. So, um, I, I just found it helpful to type out the metrics like this and then try to think through what they mean. And, um, and then, so I wrote, wrote another little helper function that, that takes those sort of human readable definitions and turns them into panda statements. So, um, that that's what's going on here. I wanted to be able to see these and think about these. And then this little helper function turns them into actually executable Panda statements. All right. So now, all right. So now what we've done is we've, and I'm just using loops and stuff. I calculated these across, across male and female. So I calculated all these metrics across male and female. All right. And um, generally speaking, things look okay, right. And, and we'll, we'll go a few steps further than this. But in general, right, we want these numbers to be similar. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, we'll, we'll see one little fairness problem rearing its head later. But in general, these numbers look okay. That may be because I used that more constrained model. Um, or it may just be that there's not that much bias in this data set. And, and in fact, it's what adverse impact says is true positive plus false positive. So these are all the people I said would default. These are all the people that that experience an adverse outcome, I'm not going to give them the loan. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying, I'm not going to give the loan to about 20% of women and about 22% of men or 23% of men. So from a tri- very you know high level traditional fairness standpoint, I'm giving more loans to women than I am to men, um, so that's roughly a good sign. But but we'll dig into it more. So the way a lot of these fairness tests work is um, we want to divide them. We we take these values. We take we would call female the, the reference level and male the I'm sorry, male would be the reference level and female would be like the protected class.
0: Mm-hmm. And we want
1: to compare them, right? I want to see how far female is off from male how far off a protected class is from what would generally be considered the, the privileged class, at, at least in past historical data. And and so I want to divide female by male and we'll get to that in just a second. Um, so if if any two of these numbers are different, it's, it's probably the false emissions rate. Um, you know, it looks like at least proportionally that that there is some difference from from male and female. And, and so what does what in the world does that mean, right, that now we're getting into some pretty um, potentially detailed stuff. So, so false emissions rate is out of the people in the group, the model predicted would not default. Uh How many the model predicted incorrectly would not default. All right, so this is about not defaulting and predicting not defaulting incorrectly. So, what in the world does that mean for fairness? Um, So, false emissions measures how many customers the model predicted incorrectly would not default out of the customers in the group the model predicted would not default. So we'll have to think through that a little bit. We'll have to think through that a little bit more. But but if any of these numbers on the table are jumping out as being different, you know, just proportionally, it might be the false omission rate.
0: Uh, okay, so it, in the false omission, if you have a higher false omission rate, then basically it's saying the model's inaccurately saying that one class is going to repay the loan more frequently than the other class.
1: Yes, exactly. So so that's why that's why people are saying to check all these different metrics, right? Because there's just so you you might say that these are all different fairness definitions. I'm not sure I go that far. But um, there's just many ways that that bias can sneak into these models because they're really complicated. So so we'll we'll I think that's an accurate description. And we'll come back to it in just a minute. But so so there's this thing called the four fifths rule, which is just a rule of thumb. Okay. So, so the four fifths rule is just a rule of thumb. Um, and it says roughly, and and it was delineated by the, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So it, so it sort of came from employment law. Um, and it basically says roughly that I don't want a decision-making system to to treat groups of people more than twenty percent differently. Right? It's a it's mm-hmm. a very very rough rule, but but if you don't know where to start, it's not the worst place in the world to start. Sure. So so basically, what we do is we divide the the female number by the male number and the male number by the male number. So I think I mean I just leave this in here because I think it's mildly helpful to see what's going on. We divided everything in this table by the male number because we would consider you know female as the as the protected class and and male as the reference class and so when I do that I can see adverse impact which is you know generally speaking the most sort of well-known measurement of this stuff I can see that adverse impact is at least within the the four-fifths rule it's between 0.8 on the low side and 1.25 on the high side Um, and and basically the interpretation of this here is for um, every one male that I deny alone, I'm denying 0.88 females. And we would, we would be concerned if that number was for every one male I was, you know, denying, I was denying 0.7 females or I was denying 1.3 females. But, but just from a very basic, you know, high level standpoint, we're going to say that this number is okay. It's within the four fifths rule. Females are actually slightly favored. Um, so so we'll say that this number is okay in, in my silly little example um now false emissions rate is outside of that four-fifths rule those four-fifths rule boundary conditions okay
0: mm-hmm.
1: so just slightly right just slightly so um you know we'll we'll keep kind of working through what this means we'll we'll, we'll keep kind of working through what this means i i think that the flag false emissions rate you know Males may like like I think you said, male it, it essentially means that males may be receiving too many loans they can't pay back. If it's a zero sum game and there's not infinity dollars to loan, that could be preventing females from receiving loans. So um yeah, I, I'd say that this this is base. The, these are good numbers. The, these are decent numbers. Um, but but if we really wanted to be serious about this, we would we would need to follow up on this. And and of course, if it's like a billion dollar lending portfolio, it's, it's probably a good idea to do that. But again, I'm I'm not a regulation expert. Um, you know, the, the way that this is handled in the U.S. is 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 managed under very strict regulatory guidance. And I don't think I'm being you know I'm I'm not representing that process exactly here by any means. So,
0: sure.
1: um, you know, we're, we've been clued in that there could be some, some minor fairness issue related to fossil emissions, rate. Everything else looks okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and right here, I'm just plotting that, that, you know, here's my four fifths rules boundaries and the, of course, male is in, in there, they're the reference level, but female is just, is just slightly low for fossil emissions, rate. Um, okay now you know we can do all these group parity checks which is essentially just applying you know a binary test to whether these numbers are within the four-fifths rule and then also um, we can define and again there's lots of other there's even more fairness measurements and and definitions than, than what i'm showing um these are just all the ones that are easy to calculate from the confusions matrix. from the confusion matrix so so there are ways to sort of hold our model to an even higher bar. So, like a, a type one parity test would be if there was group parity, so, so males and females roughly similar, um, with false discovery rate and false positive rate. Right? So, so now we're getting into some combined metrics or a little bit of an even higher bar to pass. Um, and you can see that that like we do pass this combined high bar of equalized odds but not um, but not type 2 parity and not supervised fairness and and so we would say from an overall perspective you know we we do have some bias issues that we might want to look into um, i've had really smart you know expert sort of compliance people just i've talked to them about this and they they you know their comment was that, that that this may kind of make people feel like it's impossible to to meet all these standards right so so again, I'm not an expert here. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much of this you would want to be blue, um, but but we can, I think the take home lesson here is we can go to even higher bars of, of combined uh, group parity test to, to test our model if we want to. And we'll actually see in just a minute, I can fix, I can make all of these blue, it, it turns out. All right, um, so there's this really tricky thing in, It can happen in linear models, too. I guess it's just more likely in um, in machine learning models that that uh, one word for it might be local bias. And and that essentially means that that the machine learning model is treating similar people differently, people that we as humans would know should be treated the same. It's, it's kind of putting them on different sides of a decision boundary or, or treating them differently in, in some other more kind of complex local way. And all of these tests are sort of based on group averages and they're not gonna detect this problem. So I think that's a really scary thing that, that needs to be communicated about machine learning is, is some of this traditional disparate impact testing uh, won't pick up all the potential bias problems in a machine learning model. So, so yeah, how do you- sense how you find local bias is really kind of tricky and kind of an Easter egg hunt these days. Um, I started looking at the residuals and my, my the, so these are the, these are, um, women who I said would default, but did not. So these are women false positives. And I, I originally thought these three people looked really suspicious. Like these are the people I was the most wrong about. Right? So maybe, maybe there's some discrimination there. And what it turns out is, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying there isn't discrimination here, but um, there is they have a horrible repayment history, two months late, two months late, seven months late, seven months late, seven months late, Uh, and then somehow they go on to not default. So the model really thinks they're going to default. So Maybe
0: they're just genuinely outliers.
1: Yeah, they're just genuinely outliers. And I don't think anyone with this kind of payment history. I don't think any credit card company would offer them, you know, more credit. And I don't, you know, I don't, we can't say they weren't discriminated against definitively, but they have a horrible payment history. So it's kind of like, right, if if those people are, um, if those people aren't the people to worry about, then maybe it's the people close to the decision boundary. And that actually makes a lot more sense. So, yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking of uh, decision trees where it's drawing those boundaries through your clusters of points, um, then, yeah, it's going to be whoever's closest to that boundary, but just on the other side, that's going to get the negative impact.
1: Right. And and literally, right. We know that a machine learning model can just put somebody who makes one hundred thousand dollars and somebody who makes one hundred and one thousand dollars just on the different side of a decision boundary or or twenty nine thousand nine 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 and thirty thousand on the different side of a decision boundary when that one dollar just doesn't matter. So um, if we look down here sort of closer to the decision boundary, right, these the decision boundary was about point two seven. And if we look at some of these people, um, again, all women that the model was wrong about. You know, I, I think these are more likely this is more likely evidence of local discrimination, I mean this person never missed a payment, they didn't use their credit card very much, but they never missed a payment. Mm-hmm. Um, this person had one late payment, um, one late payment, and then and then, you know, so, so this is where it gets really tricky because this person had, had has had some recent late payments. Um, this person has had one late payment. Um, and again, sort of minimal utilization. So so it's really tricky. It's really, really tricky. But I think if we were if we're going to be very careful, um, I do argue that that these are potentially examples of people who are kind of arbitrarily put on one side of a decision boundary. And, and, um, you know, we, we should probably be a little bit more careful about picking the decision boundary. So, so, you know, very basic ways to remediate fairness problems in machine learning is like, as you guys said in the beginning, make sure you have representative data and then two, thinking about your decision boundary very carefully. So I'm going to go up and, and, you know, toy with the decision boundary in just a minute. Um, Before I do that, so so you know, from a global perspective, from a global fairness perspective, things were looking decent, at least we had this one little flag, you know, to to kind of maybe there is something to follow up on. we were trying to be careful about the whole local bias thing and machine learning. And, and we looked at the residuals as just one potential way to go in that, that Easter egg hunt, And we found, you know, we found that maybe our cutoff was just a little bit too conservative. It's arguable, it's complicated, but, but maybe our cutoff is just a little bit too conservative. And, and I want to show how that's fixable. But before I do that, I want to get into the Shapley, the local Shapley values. Um, so this is for the highest risk person in the data set. Um, so th- this is someone that, that we would not extend credit to, right? I think mm. I think it's literally this this person here that has these bad repayment histories. Yep. So um, so we have this monotonically constrained model, and I didn't get into um, you know what what that looks like. I'm going to go to another notebook really quickly, or actually just show this picture. So so I can graph. Every variable's behavior in a partial dependence plot like this, and see the monotonicity of, of each feature in general in this model. It's not in this notebook, but that's something easily that we could have done, and it's done in some of the other notebooks that you guys have access to. So, so I have this monotonically constrained model where I can draw a picture of how every variable behaves in the model. Um, I can get this overall um, variable importance ranking, which I think is really helpful. Just overall pay zero is very important credit limit, pay two, pay three. Um, And then for every single person I can I can get the actual and this is where the Shapley values are different. They're the actual numeric contribution of of each variable to each prediction. And and they're all positive here. They wouldn't always be positive, but this person's data is so bad, and under this model, every single variable is pushing them up towards defaulting. So, mm-hmm. um, and another really nice thing is about Chaplin value is they're additive, so they add up to the model prediction. And um, it it happens in the logit space or or in the margin space. It doesn't happen in the probability space. But here's a check of, you know, whether, whether the Shapley values sum up to the model prediction, and they do. And then we can go ahead and say for every person, like I can give the top three reason and, and little written statements, you know, why, why I'm not going to give credit to this person or, or explain the model's decision. So um, the most important reason we're not going to extend credit to this person is because they were two months late on their most recent payment. They were two months late on their second most recent payment. And then the next variable is their sixth most recent payment where they were seven months late. And so this is actually really, these are this is a really good explanation of why I wouldn't give someone more credit. You're late on your most recent bills and you're late on the farthest one out. I have, you've actually never paid me back. You're seven months late from six months ago. So this is, these are really good reasons for why you wouldn't give someone more credit. So I want to highlight like, this is what you can do with machine learning on tabular data today. I can have a model form that's interpretable that it can be interpretable by all these nice plots and other kinds of descriptions, variable importance, and then for every single decision I can say based on the input variables why the model made the decision. Mm. And then moreover, you know we got we did a lot of sort of thinking about the the basic bias testing for the model. So I just think this makes so much more sense than like using and nothing against TensorFlow, right, PyTorch using PyTorch to build, you know, a 17 layer MLP network on this data set. I just that, that's silly when you can do something like this. So so that's yeah. A,
0: no, I, I think that makes sense, especially for tabular data. Yeah, for
1: tabular data. Yes.
0: Yeah, I, I think that makes absolute sense.
1: Um, OK, and so if we want to fix our easy fairness problem in this easy data set you know just just from toying around with this so much i can i can move up the cutoff just a little bit and and you'll see what happens so um up here in this cell i it so we could we could maximize accuracy or or other sort of metrics to to maybe make a better argument at, at picking the cutoff but i've just played around with it so much i know if i just move it from 0.7 to point 0.27 to 0.3, um, all my tests will pass. Let's see. All right, so so you know, I know we're right at the, the top of the time, and we did a little bit of questions as, as we went along. But if you guys have any questions or comments, you know, in the last two minutes, please let me know.
0: Yeah. Um... No, I mean, this is really cool. Thank you for showing this, uh, example. I mean, up until this point, uh, what we've been showing has been just how straightforward it is. And we really haven't gotten into like the TensorFlow stuff yet. Um, just a little bit for like image processing stuff. Um, but this is really nice cause this shows on top of how easy it is to run these, uh, decision tree and gradient boosting models um to extend it to actually give you more information about what's going on inside of the model uh is also pretty achievable for um for somebody who might still consider themselves to be in the shallow end of the pool. So yeah. That's,
1: yeah.
0: Um, that's uh that's really neat. Um so I definitely appreciate you um showing this. Um and I mean we have done a bunch of videos on tabular data, but we haven't talked about uh, fairness in any of those
1: data. If you can, yeah. some bias. Well, it's a really it's a really complicated subject. And and hopefully I haven't bastardized it completely. And I would urge you guys to bring on. I, I can even help you find potentially somebody who who is more of a real expert in the field.
0: Yeah. Um, so that that was going to be um, I guess the the last few questions are more kind of centered around Uh, So if if people want to follow what Patrick Hall is doing, I know you just recently released a new version of your machine learning interpretability book. Um, But are there other ways that folks should keep up with you or other papers that you've just um, uh, released that you'd like people to check out?
1: Yeah. All right. So we, this is a good book. It's, it's, it gets longer and longer and a little bit more and more unwieldy every time but but I am happy with it and it just it has a ton of different techniques in it to, to go and follow up on. Um, and so at some point in this book, we just start literally naming techniques and talking about where you can download them and that goes on for about 30 pages. Um, and that's probably actually more useful than reading whatever dumb stuff I'm I'm writing but um, this is a really good one. If, so th- these models can be hacked. I don't think it's yeah. super. I, I don't know. It's just something to be aware of. It's just, I, it's just something to be aware of. And and it's really interesting and, and way to think about machine learning, right? Like I said, I learned there's always two sides to this, right? Everything can be a, a weapon or a tool. And then when it's used as a weapon, it can hurt me, the model provider, and it can hurt other people that are using the model. So it's it's an interesting way to think about machine learning, if nothing else.
0: Well, and um, like the interpretability things that you're showing are kind of direct defenses against the hacking. Oh,
1: well, and because and because they, they are the attacks, too. And, and oh, so I think that's sure. really the reason they're the defenses is because they're also the attacks. And so, I, you know, that was very eye opening for me to learn about this thing that I've been working on for so long and that I thought was just so helpful. Um, could actually be used in a negative way. Um, this is a much more sort of technical paper that that we put forward with some best practices and about using explainable machine learning. If if people are interested, um, it'll be up on archive by Friday or Monday. I can't I can't remember when. And and okay. you know we're really grateful that it it was an accepted paper at this um, NeurIPS workshop. So oh sure yeah. Um, yeah, we've, we've had a good run this year. We had a paper at, um, KDD XAI workshop as well. And, and, um, yeah, so, so lots of stuff to go on. And I think, uh, to learn more about fairness. So for me, and I've actually been lucky enough to participate in this conference too, but, but, you know, go to this conference, look at the resources. Um, and, and interestingly, their very first resources, the security of machine learning. And I think that's just, you know, happens to be alphabetical by the person's last name, but, but there is some interplay here. Um, so this is a great resource to learn more about fairness. And then also, I think just using these packages and IBM has all these nice tutorials on, on their website. Um, this book, so so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of resources out there. It's just about you know, do you have time? And, and time is always a very precious resource. But if you can, you know, if you can make a little bit of time, I think all of these would be kind of rewarding resources.
0: Okay, that's great. And then um, I know you're pretty active on on LinkedIn. Uh, do you also? Um, are there any other social networks that you're yeah. active on? If people um, want to stay in touch with you?
1: Sure, I I am on Twitter. And um, let's see. I mean, yeah, this is me on Twitter. Where am I profile? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, and and I'm usually pretty happy to talk if I if I have time. So yeah,
0: uh, yeah. Okay. Well, Feel well, that's great. And then, um, uh, who else should we talk? Should we talk to, or should we try to? Um uh, get to talk to in this kind of because uh, we're wanting to continue interviewing folks like your yourself because I think that's something that's really beneficial to our internal University audience, but then also to the data science community um, To really dig into a Jupiter notebook like this and and talk about what it takes to do this data science
1: Well, thing. I can't be sure that you know, I, I don't know about these people's calendars, but um you know, these are very, I, if you can get either of these people on your, on your podcast then then good for you. But these are, these are leading scholars in the fairness field. Okay. And then, um, Cyril, I'm going to, I don't know how to say her last name. Um, and I don't know how to say Suresh's last name, but I think either of these, these two people would be incredible from a fairness perspective. Okay. And then, um, I can brag on my friend a little bit. Um, Let's see. So, so Nick is really an expert on fairness in the regulatory setting and, Mm -hmm. and has some really interesting ideas and and proven work that he's done on real life AI systems at real life giant financial services companies. And um, on the security on the security. All right, all right. And so I keep showing this paper accidentally, but I should just talk about it. This is an excellent paper for practical techniques for explaining NLP models. Ooh, and yeah. um, we work with Samir Singh a lot, a great guy, very seminal researcher in explainability. And, and so um, he's he's much more on the explanation security model debugging side. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a great paper for for very practical techniques for explaining machine learning models. And then the paper that I keep trying to show is this one. So um, I can also say my friend Andrew Burt is a great person to speak to or follow for um, stuff on the privacy and uh, uh, security side. He's a, he's a Yale educated attorney who lowers himself to doing machine learning stuff. So um, inter- interesting guy with lots of interesting uh, things to say.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well cool. Um are you gonna be at uh, supercomputing? Does H2O uh go to supercomputing?
1: I won't be because I'm a horrible engineer, but but like our CTO is a big um you know former HPC physics physicist guy. Um so so there might be somebody from H2O there. I'm not sure. Okay. And and I I would say both, you know, our open source software uses this very specialized Java distributed computing framework and then the, the proprietary software driverless AI uses very sophisticated hardware-based acceleration with GPUs and so H2O is really a high-performance computing company. I just work more on this side of things. So sure sure um, yeah, no, then, I,
0: we're, we're gonna be going to supercomputing here in a couple of weeks So it's just if you were gonna be there I was like hey, we should uh, at least uh, say howdy while we're there. You um, we might
1: find somebody from H2O but not me.
0: All right. All right. Not a problem. Not a problem. Well, thank you again so much for um, for talking to us and showing us the um, your your work in interpretability and explainability and machine learning. This is super fascinating. And I know it's going to be really helpful um, for the folks that uh, we talk to here at the university and and uh, other folks. So cool. Uh, so, yeah, right. Thanks. Thanks so much. I try to be useful. All right. Great you guys time. have a good day. Yep. Bye. Bye.